Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads. A space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind space. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to Mind Space. This is Jeff Boucher, and I'm here with Maya St. Clair. And this week, uh, an old friend on the show, Michael Uslin. Uh, welcome to the show, Michael. Michael is uh, so many things. He he was one of, uh, he, I've been reading him since 1978, 77, I think, maybe, uh, when I got a hold of some comic books that he wrote for DC and he did a trivia book back then that I loved, uh, the Bam Pow Zap something uh, trivia book, which is uh, better than I made it sound. And uh, but more recently, he's been well an executive producer on just about every movie that well every movie that involves Gotham that doesn't have shark repellent. Uh, he was an executive producer on, I believe. Is that right? Is that accurate? yeah? I think I think you nailed that, Jeff. Thanks. Uh, it's well, great to be here. I, I love talking to you and. Uh, uh, it's been too long. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And and you, uh, as usual, you've been just sitting around doing nothing. Uh, you have the biggest movie in the world in theaters uh, uh, right now, and uh, a new book, uh, Batman's Batman, which is a follow up, a sort of a companion piece uh, to the boy who loved Batman, uh, uh, your memoir. And then uh, you also of all things, have a Broadway show that you're working on? What, I, do you, are you a song and dance man? Did I miss this? Yeah, uh, you didn't know about that about me. Yeah, <laughs> I was James Cagney's understudy in Yankee Doodle Dandy. Nice. Um, uh, yeah, I couldn't be more excited. Uh, at this stage of my career, 45 years in, to be pushed out of my comfort zone hmm. and be in an area where uh, I wrote the play during COVID <clears throat> and it's not like writing a screenplay or a graphic novel or a comic book or an animated uh, episode. And it's been fascinating, absolutely fascinating to me. I am learning something new every single day and I'm working with the greatest group of people um, highlight in my career, uh, the Nederlander organization of New York city. Sure. Fantastic. For better people. Um, they own like half the theaters on Broadway yeah. and they knew that there was going to be a new normal in Broadway post COVID. And they were looking for entertaining um, properties to be made into Broadway shows that could have a sense of intimacy to them. And thematically, while entertaining could be uplifting, filled with hope, talk about the need to dream big and the perseverance that that takes. And um, they felt my book just really filled, checked all the boxes uh, for the kind of story that they want to tell on Broadway. Well, wow, that's really fascinating. Um, I have so many questions, but it's such early days on that. It's probably too too soon to talk about it, but it sounds very exciting. It, sounds it like is really very exciting. exciting. We, we are in on a fast track. Um, we'll probably have some big announcements coming over the next month or two. We'll announce some of the people attached to it. Uh, it's a creative wellspring. And, uh, and again, I just feel like I'm in the best, most experienced hands in the business. That's terrific. Well, when... When that one's a huge success, then uh, I, I would love to sit down and talk to you about, I have all these really wonderful ideas for musicals uh, based on the DC universe, and I'm only being half serious. I, 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 uh, I actually made up a list of what DC characters would make good D- uh, musicals, because I think it'd be great to, to dig into the DC universe and 
and put some musicals on. We haven't really seen one for a DC character uh, since Superman in the 70s with, uh, or 60s actually, with 60s. Bob Holiday, yeah. I think, uh, in the lead. Uh, it's Bird, it's a plane, it's Superman, right? That's exactly right. Um, Jack Cassidy was uh, was in the show originally, uh-huh. and um, Linda uh, Linda Lavin. Yeah, Linda Lavin, and they had a set that was like uh, panels of a comic book. It was like uh, three stories tall, and you could see people in the, the different frames up and down the the, the structure, which is really yeah. It, it, it was all meant to coincide with the Batmania of the Batman television show at that stage of time in our lives. That's right, because it was like 1969 uh, or thereabouts. Yeah, that, that sounds about right, maybe yeah. earlier. Um, and everybody forgets off-Broadway, there was the Mad Show. Oh, so yeah. there, there was an extension even beyond what we normally think about. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, did you see that show by any chance? Uh, the Superman show? Yeah. I didn't see it in its original run. I saw it in a later run. Yeah. And uh, it, it was, uh, I have not seen it. And, uh, but I've, I've heard the, the, the music, uh, you know, very broad kind of uh, and, and uh, two-dimensional kind of portrayal kind of thing. Yeah, it wasn't exactly my cup of tea. I was glad to see it happening. I thought Bob Holiday looked great. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand the effects were kind of Mary Martin, Peter Pan-ish uh, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what they did. But you got to remember, you know, my story uh, back in the 60s, um, I'm a blue collar kid. My parents couldn't afford to take me to Broadway shows. Right. Uh, they, they took me to my first one when I was 10, which was Golden Boy with Sammy Davis Jr. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, but we didn't have that kind of money to sling around. So uh, a lot of things I had to just dream about. Yeah, I get that. Um, and, uh, you know, your life, uh, that uh, your personal life and, and your professional odyssey is a big part of Batman's Batman, which is the, the new book that we mentioned. Um, you know, I was looking at it, every chapter begins with the letter P. I thought that was great. Um, I was looking for one that said press because I, I figured I would be in it just because of just longevity. Well, wait a minute. There's <laughs> one called promotion and publicity. I could have made it promotion, publicity and press. That well, would have worked really well. I think maybe put the press first, at least just, just for appearances at least. Um, when you were putting the book together, did you find that you had a lot of things that um, you decided you ought not to include? Did you have to filter out a lot of things uh, just because of, uh, you know, just uh, uh, people's feelings or sensitivities over the years? Or, or just, yeah. did you kind of uh, put it all in there? Uh, no, I, I had to. Um, I, I was raised by a mom who always taught me, if you have nothing nice to say about someone, say nothing. Right. And sure. that's a rule I try to live by. Um, I also wrote this book during COVID uh, right. while I was also writing the play. And I actually wrote a screenplay for the feature film version of The Boy Who Loved Batman. And um, I, I, I can tell you, I've, we just signed the contract with my first choice of director on it, Howie Deutsch, oh, wow. um, who is just terrific and has done everything from Pretty in Pink to uh, young Sheldon on TV, uh, very excited about it. Uh, and that's something that um, will pop up after the Broadway play opens. Um, but yeah, um, there are some things, Jeff, where the wounds are just a, still a little too fresh. Sure. And I didn't feel like uh, discussing it or I didn't feel like I had distanced myself enough from certain stories to be able to do that. Right. Um, there's one or two stories I didn't want to, uh, at this late stage of my career, wind up blacklisted. Sure, sure. <laughs> so, but that would be a good idea not to deal with. But, you know, I, I pretty much laid it down on the table. I think uh, all my um, followers uh, over the years, all these great, great fans, they kind of know which Batman movies were not exactly uh, on my hit parade. Sure. And how I spent more time for a while trying to stop certain movies from being made than trying to make movies. Wow. And, uh, but that's just part of the process. Yeah. Well, the difference between good and great is what you don't do. So that was you being great. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about, uh, you had to tell me about this Motown. Uh, you know, I was reading the book uh, and I got to the section about, you know, uh, a, a Motown collaboration. I, I remember the Marvel Casablanca records deal in the late 70s that uh, didn't really go very far, but 
uh, was Dazzler and all that. Uh, what what can you tell me and to our listeners about the the Motown experiment? Well, there's there's two parts to the Motown story. Let me let me deal with the feature film first. Uh, after I had uh, the rights to Batman, uh, I went to Motown and I said, "Listen, uh, I've done Batman. I can't just do the Atom or you know <laughs> a long way down." You know, a typical super a superhero. I need something that's really special. I said, and uh, Stanley and company have really, uh, they broke open the industry with their work on Luke Cage, Hero for Hire, Black Panther. And Luke Cage was the first one to actually get his own magazine title. Mm-hmm. Um, I said, I want to acquire the rights to Luke Cage and um, bring it out as a feature film. Well, I got Motown really excited about the prospect. We, we actually signed the contract. Uh, I signed the contract with Marvel acquiring the rights to the IP, the intellectual property. And um, uh, the first person who had some great ideas about it was my old Batman alum, alumni, alumnus, uh, Robert Wool. And uh, we had a, a great first meeting about it. And at that point in time, Universal was led by Suzanne DePass, uh, Motown was led by Suzanne DePass, who was terrific. Sure. And uh, they had been acquired by Universal mm-hmm. and everything was running through Universal. And uh, truth be told, we couldn't, we couldn't make a lot of headway. Yeah. What year uh, was, would this have been, would you say? Oh man, uh, I'll look it up if you don't. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the years start to blend. Sure, um, I'm going to guess it was right after Batman, which would have put us in '89. Yeah, um, that that's just the best guess, but but we can research that, that one. That makes sense. Um, you know, and it was a time, Jeff, that was so different than the times we're living in right now. Yeah, it was a very, very tough sell to try to get any company interested in um, a project that centered around a protagonist who was black. Sure. I mean, it, it, it was just a different era. It was like a different world back then. Yeah, especially Luke Cage, because it, it would have been sort of street stories. I mean, it, it wouldn't even be, it would be hard to do it without having like an urban, you know, kind of edge to it that people really would have made it even further from uh, the, the mainstream option that they were looking for. Definitely. It was going to be set in Times Square in the 80s, which was not the greatest place on earth right. uh, at that moment in time. Um, it was very urban. And it was about a guy, if you remember the early days of it, who, you know, his main job was to try to get on the six o'clock and 11 o'clock news right. and it advance the PR for his uh, hero for hire firm. Yeah. So um, it, it was very, very urban in terms yeah. of and, um, and, and kind of based, I mean, loosely, uh, in, well, certainly influenced by Dolomite and, and the black exploitation movies. I mean, that 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 went into the ingredients that uh, Marvel uh, added when they made Luke Cage. Right? Yeah, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, then the second Motown thing, uh, <laughs> um, you know, my partner on Batman was Ben Melnicker. Yes. Ben was my dad's age. Ben was a legend in the movie industry. Uh, in MGM's Tiffany days, Ben started at MGM in late 1939. Not a bad year for MGM or for movies no. generally. Yeah. And uh, wound up becoming the, the sole executive vice president. All divisions reported to him. He was the chairman of the film selection committee and was on the parent board at Lowe's. And... Um, uh, Ben said to me, I'm having lunch at the Friars Club with one of my old friends from the days of MGM Records and uh, our music department, Clarence Haven. Oh, wow. And he said, Clarence is a legend in the business. I said, oh, my God, I've heard of Clarence. Yeah. He said, would you like to join us for lunch? I said, Ben, that would be awesome. So the three of us had lunch that day. And as we were talking, and I don't think there's anyone I have more respect for than Clarence Aben and everything that he's accomplished. Yeah. Um, he, he, is a, he is a titan um, and the nicest guy in the world. Authenticity so, all day long. Authenticity all day long. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
so he said to me, you know, Michael, what you what you've done with Batman, he said, it's just terrific. He said, you know, I'm on the board of Motown. And um, a lot of our properties have kind of been gathering dust of late. He said, if you ever have any ideas about something that can be done to kind of jumpstart the Motown library, he said, that would be great. And then on the spot, Jeff, and you, you, you know how I work and what I do, I go, well, wait a minute, I have an idea. Yeah. <laughs> I have an outline. I just did it. <laughs> <laughs> and right there at that, uh, at that lunch, I said, um, what if we do, what if we turn Gotham uh, Motown into like a Detroit version of Gotham City? Mm-hmm. And we create Motown superheroes. And he, it was like, well, you know, what are you talking about? I go, well, think about it for a second. All the names of the Motown groups would make great superhero names. You've got the Supremes, yeah. three women of supreme intelligence through the supreme power, supreme beauty. You've got the four tops. I can picture them spinning madly, you know, with, with superpowers. Um, you've got um, the temptations. I said, oh, yeah. whoa, I mean, you know, that could have all sorts of meanings. Um, I said, and plus, I said, wait a minute. You've got a, you've got a name that Marvel can't trademark because you were there first, the Marvelettes. Oh, wow. That's I said, right. how, I mean, how amazing is that as a superhero name? I said, and, uh, and if you could work the right kind of deal, you even have your own Harry Potter in Little Stevie Wonder. Oh, could be the, the blind magician, young magician of the group. Sure. Songs um, of uh, intervention. And we started to talk and I said, you could, you could do new versions of the old songs. We could create villains out of the titles of the old songs. You know, there was that great song, Turn to Stone. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I said, bingo, we got ourselves a villain. That's great. And, and, and that's how it all evolved. He was super, super, super excited about it. Um, Unfortunately, um, there was not a lot of interest over at uh, Universal back then at, at that time. Yeah. And uh, like many other stories I tell in my book, many other projects that I was so excited about that I saw the opportunity to be a great hit and, yeah. and to, to do something different, not just cookie cutter stuff, but to try to be different um, that, <laughs> that sank in the West, and uh, that was it. Yeah, well, it's a that's a that's a fascinating one. I, I wonder if it, it could still be uh, uh, turned into a, a, a comic book, at least. <laughs> okay. I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. You know, Suzanne DePass. Uh, I actually have some history with her uh, that predates our history. Um, she was a, a producer, as you know. Uh, and she did Lady Sings the Blues, which got Diana Ross an Oscar nomination. Uh, and she produced uh, Roots, uh, the television event of the 1970s. And she also produced Lonesome Dove, which is one of the great miniseries uh, ever on television. And um, I, had, I had some dealings with her. She optioned my book back in the 90s, uh, the, the crime book that I did. I never did about, that. Yeah, the book I did about the, uh, the gang member turned cop. Uh, the true story about uh, a Santa Ana gang member, a uh, female gang member, and how she, um, you know, re, you know, turned her life around and, and became a police officer and went back into the same neighborhood uh, as an undercover cop where she grew up. Wow. Um, but Suzanne DePass optioned it, and they were going to make a TV movie out of it, two nights, and I was so excited. And you talk about things that kind of come and go. Um, the book was, <clears throat> excuse me, called Two Badges. And it had a lot of the duality of the gang life and the police life. And they wanted to uh, do first night, she would be a gang member. And second night, she would be a cop. Uh, and it was all just perfectly arrayed and everything. And then, you know, uh, she actually had some health issues for a little bit. And then that, that slowed things down. And then NBC decided that they wanted to do Gulliver instead. And it was all over, just like that. That's why I say in Batman's Batman, you need a very high threshold for frustration in this business. 
Yeah. Happens all the time. And, and you've got to be Johnny Appleseed. You've got to be throwing things out left and right because you never know after five years or 10 years what's going to wilt on the vine at the last minute and what's going to bloom and flourish. Yeah, well, and look at, you know, for instance, comic book movies. I mean, now people just assume that, you know, because Marvel is what they are now, it's always been that way. But I mean, you and I remember a time when Marvel, I mean, they, you know, Marvel stopped uh, traffic in comic books, but they couldn't get a cab in Hollywood. You know, like, they, uh, you know, Howard the Duck and, and you know, and Blade started turning things around. But I mean, Marvel had a, uh, a really... Uh, uh, stubborn reputation as being not good enough for the big screen well the, the first the first two shots were um captain america and fantastic four um which were deemed unreleasable uh, Never you know, ultimately but um yeah you know i had talked to uh, jim galton who was the president of marvel at the time a great great guy and i said you know I think what they were tending to do back then was whoever came in the door and put down the biggest amount of money as an option, they made the deal. And there was no real strategy to it. Right. it, it was just money talks. And um, it was only after they got off of that, that things really began to come together. You know, there's a great, great story I had where after Batman opened, so it opened in June. So probably it was, was fall. I get a call from Jim and he said, uh, Joe Calamari, who was their head of uh, uh, business affairs, fabulous, wonderful guy, good friend. He said, we'd like to take you to lunch. I said, great. So they wind up taking me to lunch at like the most expensive restaurant in New York. And we're there and they're ordering this very expensive bottle of wine. And halfway through the lunch, I go, okay, fellas, what are we doing? <laughs> What's going on? And Jim said to me, Michael, this is our thank you. I said, for what? He said, for your Batman movie. He said, you've brought attention back to the comic book industry. Um, the general public did not even seem to know that comic books were still being published right. because the candy stores, the little drug stores had dried up. 7-Elevens mm -hmm. uh, had stopped carrying comic books. He said, all of a sudden you made them aware that there are comic book shops and you can go and buy comic books. He said to me, our sales are up like 20% across the board. Hmm. And this was just our, I thank you. I mean, yeah. it, it was lovely. Um, I went back to Jim uh, back in the early 1980s, again, trying to push the envelope. I was at the forefront of the new interactive um, producing. Right. And at that time, it was video discs, interactive video discs. And I had a deal. There were three services at the time. VHD, which was a joint venture of JVC, General Electric, and Thorn EMI, that was coming to America. There was RCA mm -hmm. um, that had the stylus to play the video games, and Pioneer, which was all laser. Mm -hmm. And I went to, to Jim and I said, listen, look at what we've done here. We've done our first one. And there's all this potential for branching where you could do kind of choose your own adventure in, oh. in video style. It's like gaming meets this. And <clears throat> I got them excited about where the future was headed. We signed a contract for me to acquire all interactive slash internet rights of the entire Marvel library for $5,000. And I went to RCA. Yeah. And as I got in the door, they said, they just announced we're th throwing in the towel. We can't <laughs> compete with the lasers. I said, fine. I went to VHD and they told me, we just decided we're going to abort our North American uh, debut. So all I was left with was Pioneer. So I went to Pioneer in North Jersey and sat with them and laid the whole thing out. I go for $5,000, the whole Marvel, every Marvel character. And they said, well, we really think that the potential for interactive video is really music concerts where you could press a button and go right to a specific cut. And there's two soundtracks, so you could do commentary on it. I said, no, but we can do all of this superhero storytelling. Yeah. And, and they go, nah. I said, look, I'll put up half the money if you put up $2,500. Yeah. And they said, nah, it's not where we're going. Thanks, but no thanks. I had no outlets left. Wow. left and, and that was the end it's of like, that deal. It's like having like a stack of Betamax tapes. You know, it's like, oh, now what? Yeah. Uh, 
that's frustrating. You know what they say, um, sometimes a person uh, who's ahead of their time is somebody that has bad timing. No, just joking. (laughs) No kidding. There is a price to be paid when you're always trying to be cutting edge and ahead of the pack. Absolutely. Uh, uh, There's an absolute, that's why it took 10 years for Batman to get made. Um, You know, I I had an opportunity um, to buy Marvel Mm -hmm. uh, back in the early nineties when it went bankrupt a second time. That story is in the book. Um, I could have bought it for $95 million, but the people that we were talking to on the financial side didn't get it. Yeah. Uh, I had an opportunity through Stan Weston, God bless him, um, to, bu- to buy DC Comics back around 1984 for $11 million, not to include Superman. Wow. Uh, it could include the comic book publishing, but all other Superman rights they would keep. But we had something like 60 days to try to raise $11 million, and we got laughed out of every office on Wall Street. They said, you want $11 million for a funny book company? Yeah. And um, Stan told me, yeah, Stan told me that um, when our time ran out, they offered it to Marvel and Mm -hmm. Stan wanted to do it. But uh, Martin Goodman talked to his lawyers and they said there's going to be huge antitrust issues. It's going to get very expensive and drawn out. And that never happened. And, um, you know, certainly uh, everybody over at DC Warner are very happy about that. It's it's fascinating to think, uh, you know, you mentioned how uh, Marvel projects, uh, it was whoever walked in the door that had an interest on a particular character. Everything was, uh, it was like spread out on a, a blanket at a flea market. You know, he just pointed and make a deal. Um, DC was wholly owned by Warner Brothers by the time Superman came out. I mean, they, it was it was owned by Warner like in the beginning. Communications, yeah. Yeah. Um, but look at how it affected their approach to uh, the, the DC library. Their approach was there's Superman and that's it. And then eventually, okay, there's Batman too. And then for years it was Superman, Batman, Superman, 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 Batman, Batman, Batman. You know, like if you look at the movies uh, and they never really went uh, further down into the catalog while the Marvel ones, when they were piecemeal, at least when people got passionate about uh uh, a secondary or tertiary character, it propelled it to the to still get a movie. But in DC, you didn't really see that happen. I mean, for years, I mean, Superman uh, was the first character to have multiple movies. Batman was second. Yep. Third one, I believe, was Swamp Thing. Yep. Was the, the third character to have uh, more than one movie. And after that, it went... One correction in that. It, went, it actually went Superman, Swamp Thing, Batman. Oh, for the, the second? For the, yeah, the second one was out by 89. 89, that's right. Okay, <laughs> even better, even better. Uh, and then after that, like, what is the next DC character to have a sequel that isn't already on the list? I think it was R.E.D. Well, it, wasn't, it wasn't Supergirl. No, I think it was like R.E.D. Like, it's 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 a long way after that. I mean, because like none, none of the films had sequels, you know? Uh, uh, Supergirl didn't have a sequel. Uh, Green Lantern didn't have a sequel. Um, uh, the Losers didn't have a sequel. Um, Constantine didn't have a sequel. That's, that's no, a shame. That should have been. That one is a shame. I'm sorry. I knew that was going to hurt when I said it. I should have I held that one back. <laughs> but uh, I think, believe it or not, after Swamp Thing, if I'm not mistaken, I think the R.E.D., uh, you know, the the uh, sort of the fun spy-based uh, verdict title uh, was the next DC property that actually secured a sequel. That could be exactly right. Um, you know, Jeff, I, I've, I've been a parrot over the years, and I've explained... Uh, internally, and uh, to anyone else who would kind of listen, um, that you have to look at the history of these two companies to understand cinematically how the universes work. Mm-hmm. So in, in, in my opinion, and now I'm going to speak as a comic book historian, mm-hmm. Marvel was created by one writer, 
Okay. Now that is casting no aspersion on Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko, who no. co-plotted, you know, everything starting in the earliest days. Of course. It's the um, Marvel method. And the Marvel method. But it was one writer, one editor. Mm-hmm. And it had a unified vision from coming from that, from the fact that it was one unified universe. So across the Marvel comics, the tone was consistent. Who the audience they were speaking to was consistent. What the rules were in this universe were consistent. Right. Who was in New York City on any particular month was consistent. Absolutely. What was, what was in outer space? What was under the sea? Consistent. Right. Now, Unlike. you go over to DC Comics historically, and there were always six to eight editors. Mm-hmm. And they ran their particular characters they, they, they had they possessed them fully yeah. possessed them it was like a fiefdom where they would build a castle and put a moat around it with alligators and nobody else could touch it mm-hmm. they they hired their own writers and artists the editors decided who their audience was so like take batman for example you could have um uh murray boltonoff was a great editor there he was doing brave and bold Superman and Batman and world's finest comics talking more to the eight to 12 year olds. Sure. Um, And then you had Julie Schwartz, you know, trying to make Batman dark and realistic. And and, and so it was just scattered about the greatest example of that. I always like to use was maybe around 1960 or 61. I go in to buy a comic book on a Wednesday. Uh, The new ones came out. I buy an issue of action comics and I buy I think it was a showcase Aquaman. Oh, I know where this is going. <laughs> and, okay, so I go home and I, I read Superman. And in that, he meets a mermaid. Right. And he falls in love with a mermaid with Lori. a tail. Lori and she's, yeah, she's from Atlantis. And Atlantis is a dome city under the water that's completely populated by mermen and mermaids. Right. That was, I love that as a kid. Then right. I pick up Aquaman. He's the freaking king of Atlantis. No There's dome. no dome. There are no <laughs> mermaids. And these are two books from DC coming out the same week. Yeah, something's going wrong. Obviously, Superman's been, you know, pranked by somebody. Like, I mean, something's, <laughs> there's something. So afoot. how can you expect organically right. for a cinematic universe to be one unified story? Right. Um, well, yeah, DC. and people want it. You, it, it was because that, uh, as you say, Stan had his hand in everything, but it was also because he had to, right? I mean, it, he was churning out. I mean, the Marvel method was, you know, driven in large part by the fact that he didn't have time to write scripts. So, you know, let's talk about the story. You start, you send it, I'll fill in the words. I mean, that's, that's yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's very resourceful, uh, but it also led to so many interesting things because it, it, it led to the, the connectivity that you're talking about, like, New York, you would see like Thor fly by for no reason at all in the back of a, a panel of a, a daredevil. And you would be so exciting for the, the reader. Um, but there was also panels where things didn't really fit. And, and Stan would just add these like, well, I'm your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. You know, like some just random non sequitur declaration of, of hipness. And it gave this kind of meta feel to the whole thing uh and, and it's just fascinating how something that was a mechanism of uh production and practicality ended up having such a, a profound effect on the fundamental differences between these mythologies as you said absolutely absolutely and that's why i am a personally a believer in a gotham city universe mm-hmm. a metropolis universe uh, a an Atlantis universe, a Paradise Island universe, uh, because that is what DC was all about virtually since day one. Right, right. It does make team ups less, uh, makes them potentially unwieldy. You know, there was a there was a Batman filmmaker who said to me um, when the idea of a Justice League came up wait a minute, they want, there, there's, a, there's an interest in seeing a movie in which Batman is in a scene with a green guy from Mars looking over his shoulder and on the other shoulder in a one inch tall floating easy chair 
<laughs> this big. And they are talking to a guy who talks to fish. Right. And that question sums up a lot of challenges. Absolutely. I think I know, I think I, I know who that filmmaker was. I think I've had that discussion with that filmmaker uh, <laughs> at a different point in time, a long time ago. Uh, it's true. It, it's fascinating. Um, there, there's a point in uh, The Eternals uh, where Superman is mentioned. There's actually, two, uh, he's mentioned twice. Uh, and there's a reference to Batman as well, uh, which is sort of fascinating. So that's a Marvel movie that's mentioning DC characters as as they exist in the Marvel universe, they're they're known, but they're they're merely two dimensional pieces of of entertainment. Uh, that's sort of a fascinating thing, and then Marvel's done a couple things like that. They they mentioned Empire Strikes Back. Uh, you know, Spider Man mentioned them in, in I think Civil War. Uh, he's like that old movie, you know, the one with the, the walkers, uh, the things walking. It occurred to me that this is building on what we were just talking about. That Stan did. I mean, one of the stands. Uh, things was that you know have the action be in New York, uh, recognizable landmarks. If you're in Gotham and Metropolis, it just means you're not in the real world because you, you, there's no place that looks like that or uh, that in the, it changes all the time in the portrayal of it anyway. Uh, but if you're in New York, everybody knows where you're at and they recognize the stuff, so it'll feel more real. And I think this is building on that is, of course, Superman. Is known in the Marvel universe because the Marvel universe is our universe, and we see Superman comics. So of course, Spider-Man's going to know what Empire Strikes Back's back is. But in a way, it's so it, it kind of demotes DC as the you know that's just that's the fake stuff. But we're Marvel, we're real. I, I I've had that I have that theory. Do you think any of that holds up to scrutiny? Well, I think first of all, I think you're right. Um, uh, except. I think it's fun. I think it's it's yeah. people who love the genre are having fun with it. And oh yeah, none of that's bad for fans. Yeah, none of that. Yeah. You know, little Easter eggs that they can uh, sink their teeth into. Sure. Uh, sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. Even in a uh, in a DC mo- movie, what was that one movie? Uh, I've blanked on the title. I think George Clooney was in it. Um, <laughs> that with Robin. Where he he makes a reference to Superman. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, as, as a comedy line. Yeah, uh, something so, about the- so, yeah. So even DC, DC movies at one time or another tossed out the in the same tone those kind of lines. You're what not going to find that in Gotham City. Uh, not yeah. in the, not in our Gotham City. And, <laughs> and that's part of the thing. You know, Stan was right, and that was revolutionary about setting things in the real world in New York, but it's changed for the better over at DC because of Tim Burton's big idea. Hmm. And when Tim Burton, that brilliant young genius said that regarding the world building, Gotham city had to be the the third most important character in the 1989 Batman movie. And literally from the opening frames, audiences had to believe in Gotham city Mm -hmm. in order to then suspend their disbelief and believe there could be a guy getting dressed up as a bat and fighting a guy who looked like the Joker. Mm-hmm. The world building that's been done on Gotham City um, brilliantly, geniusly, again, in the Batman, which uh, is now out in theaters, um, that, that's been a remarkable, remarkable, elevating part of the Batman universe, on yeah. the cinematic universe. And I think that creating that own universe and i don't believe i don't believe star wars is uh is necessarily in that particular universe i don't think you're going to see bruce wayne going to a star wars movie um and and probably not a marvel movie but um uh it's just so interesting how the approaches are so utterly different yet work in their own rights absolutely uh absolutely they they uh it's all a fantastic mess, and it's it's fascinating to see how the gears work and and uh, how people put this uh, modern mythology. Uh, uh, it, it's amazing how far it's gotten. I mean, I you know, I think you and I met probably around two thousand seven or two thousand eight, maybe. Um, and the difference between now and then 
in the way that these movies are made, the way that they're perceived, the way that they are handled, the way that they're uh, discussed, reviewed, just light years different. I remember going to my editor and saying, there's a movie coming out called X-Men. It's going to be big. It's a, and, and he's like, come on. We, did, we already sell this movie. And I said, no, 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 there, there's never been a movie like this. It's going to be like, I mean, this is the best-selling comic book there is. It's the X-Men. That's the, the best-selling comic book. And he's like, but we saw this already. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, Mystery Men. It's the same movie. And like, he thought it was going to be Mystery Men, which is not the same as X-Men at all. No. Very, very different. And I had to, he's like, okay, convince me why these movies are different. And I sat there for like 20 minutes and tried to explain why the X-Men and Mystery Men were different. And um, he, he let me do the story, but he was still skeptical, you know. Yeah. Um, the, the first movie set I was ever on was Spider-Man in 2000. Uh, and I think I've been on 50 movie sets. I, I was making a list the other day. Um, I, that'd be a good book. I should put those that together. Yes, you know? it would be. But um, in a way, that movie, that was, what, what would you say was the big, turning point movies just maybe three i mean uh, superman batman and and spider-man i mean no i would say superman batman and x-men x-men um but but here's a part of of the whole history of the thing that has been completely forgotten post batman 89 Mm -hmm. the most successful comic book movies that were launched after that were comic books that never sold more than five thousand copies per issue Okay. It was Men in Black. Sure. Yeah. It was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Right. And it was The Mask. Right. So the whole concept that you needed a Superman or a Spider-Man in order to have a blockbuster film kind of went out the door in favor of something that was just a great story with great characters. That's true. And Although, that to X-Men and to Iron Man. People forget Iron Man was a second banana Marvel superhero. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Maybe third banana, really. And, and X-Men was the one group Stan said he couldn't make successful. Fantastic Four took off in the comics. Avengers took off. X-Men kind of after Kirby left, it just kind of stayed with its nose above water for a while, then went to all reprint and then vanished. Neil Adams and Jim Steranko came in. Stan said, look, this book's a mess. It's dying anyway. Go do whatever the hell you want to do with it. And, right. you know, they each took a crack at it. But it wasn't until it came back years later that the X-Men rose to a level. You know, do you think, two quick things. So I, I think maybe on that, it's because that was, X-Men was the first Marvel characters, really, that didn't get their powers through affliction or ambition. or I mean, they were just born this way. Like, um, and the ones that had been born this way uh, previous to them were like, you know, aliens or, or demigods or, you know, they had different situations. But the X-Men, you know, they he didn't have to come up with an origin story for them. So they didn't, they were just, they didn't have the, the personal um, uh, origin stories that everybody else had. I mean, they, they were oppressed and they were uh, uh, ostracized uh, and persecuted. But it, it had a different rhythm than the other characters. Oh, absolutely. And I think it was the first movie that shed the spandex and went into leather and, and something that just felt and looked more human. And, and started in a concentration camp, which is sort of a declaration of intent right there. I mean, that's, you know, that you have to give Brian Singer and company a lot of credit for, for starting that movie like that, because I can see people getting cold feet about that. Um, I, I mean, I'm still surprised that they did it. I know, agree. I agree. Like that, in time and everything that was bold um the movies that were based on comics that sold uh under five thousand copies or or small press runs uh that you mentioned like men in black and, and teenage Mutant ninja turtles you know uh the reason that we didn't see another uh you know sort of volley of those another uh flurry of them i think is because it's it's your fault uh because of that 1989 batman movie it, it wasn't good enough to do men in black you wanted something that had a toy line built in like everybody i mean the merchandise and the marketing and the licensing uh that surrounded that 1989 movie i mean superman 1978 changed there had never been a uh, a superhero blockbuster before that there had never been um 
that big of investment on a comic book movie. I mean, that was a moment in time. It was, people forget too, it was Warner Brothers' most expensive movie they ever made up until that point. Superman was when it was released. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it was, you know, a, a massive pivot point. But the the innovation of, of Batman in 1989 and the, the changes, the way that it changed the entire rhythm of the, the industry and, and, and um, you know, the, the amount of plastic and the amount of paper and the amount of metal products that have landed on the American shelf around that summer of 1989 that had a bat on it, there was, I, it, it's unbelievable. It was like, it was like everything in the world had a bat on it for like three months. It's absolutely true. It was a, the magical summer. Um, and Paul Levitz, uh, former president of DC Comics, uh, explained to me that there wound up being an industry-wide shortage of the black uh, cotton material that they were they needed for the t-shirts. That the Batman t-shirts j- just ate up every pro- every bit of product that was out there to put the bat symbol on. Um, it, it was that crazy. Uh, in my book, I document the call I got from the president of Kenner Toys. Um, that they had a crisis and they needed me in Cincinnati like the next morning. Uh, I said, what's going on? He goes, well, we've got this whole new Batman license that, and we, we're, we're going to have Batman in all different colors because in Batman 89, we could only sell like one Batman figure and uh, we need to do something different and they won't let us do it. I said, all right, I'm on my way. Yeah. I show up at this meeting and there's like two dozen people in the room and they showed me the prototypes, which was like a red Batman, blue, green, white, gold, silver. And I said, I love this idea. What's the problem? He said, the problem is your contract with DC Comics. It says that uh, for any toys or merchandising, it has to appear the way Batman appears in the comics. And DC tells us, no, Batman, we, we let him have a black uh, outfit for the movie. So black or the gray and blue, that's all we can accept. That's him in the comics. I said, okay. I brought with me from my collection the Rainbow Batman. Oh, nice. The Super Batman. The strange costumes of Batman, which had the green one when he was in the jungle, the white one when he was in the, the Arctic. The composite said, Superman Batman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, and I, I said, here's all the issues. They then called DC Comics. They said, this is how he's portrayed in the comics. And that's how the toy line nice. got made. Nice. Um, but the, the, the sad part of the story, Jeff is that sometimes movie studios, which today are conglomerates, not just movie studios, have many wheels to grease. They own many different types of companies from theme parks to pieces of toy companies. Uh, And sometimes executives get far too caught up in toys and merchandising and happy meals. And the the worst thing of all is when that becomes the center point and the tail wags the dog, and they bring in filmmakers and instruct them that they need, according to the toy companies and the licensees, they need three heroes in a movie, three villains in a movie, each one with two costume changes with and two, two vehicles. vehicles. <laughs> and my wailing was that, well, now you're making two-hour infomercials for toys. But if, if you bring in filmmakers who have a love for and a vision for a character and a story and let them just make great films, you'll sell toys anyway. That's right. um, that wasn't always the outlook. And that was a, an extremely deeply frustrating part of my career. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a good time to be enjoying superhero stuff. Uh, and the, the place that we've gotten... Uh, a lot of people, and I'm one of them, uh, but I, I know it more than most people. A lot of people uh, owe you a great debt of gratitude uh, for being such a great, you know, guardian protector of of Gotham and and all the the and the Golden Age guys. I mean, uh, you introduced me to Jerry Robbins, and I'll always be in your debt for that. Just uh, for a chance to meet somebody like that, uh, and what you did for the guys, um, the Siegel and Schuster types, and the and the the, the guys that. Uh, unfortunately, have, have have left us uh, in mass. Uh, good on you, sir. Thank you. Good, Thank well you, done. You know? um, to me, it was always a personal responsibility. When I was 13 years old, I met Bill Finger for the first of two times, and he told me how Batman was created. 
I think I'm, I may be the only person left alive who ever actually met Bill Finger, um, maybe one of two actually. Um, Otto Binder, who created, uh, co-created with C.C. Beck, Black Adam and Mary Marvel and Captain Marvel Jr. Uh, went over to DC and co-created Supergirl, Brainiac, the Legion of Superheroes, Crypto the Superdog. These, all these people were denigrated. Right. Uh, in the 1950s, when comic books came under attack, sure. they were ridiculed. Their, their, their work was, uh, everybody looked down their nose at them. And I've always felt a personal responsibility to them, uh, not just to the characters, to respect the integrity of the characters, but to respect their integrity. And the fact that so many of the artists who are now gone, uh, their work is now hanging in museums, selling for a zillion dollars, hanging right. in art galleries, uh, being studied in schools. Um, this is this was something I set out to do. And if they couldn't appreciate it, at least their children, their grandchildren, and their great grandchildren can. It, I always felt a, a personal responsibility for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's it's a responsibility that you've handled well, and and uh, the way you've handled it has inspired people like me to try to to pitch in and help out when I can. Uh, and um, through the years, writing about stuff. Uh, when it kind of comes my way, um, and that's that's a that's uh, something that I appreciate. So, um, well, thank you for joining us, and uh, you know, you're welcome back next week and the week after that. And anytime you want to talk, uh, it's uh, it's always good to see you. And congratulations on this little movie of yours, this little small student film that's out uh, in theaters now. It's incredible. I couldn't be more excited. And let's let's throw the spotlight onto another genius, uh, Matt Reeves. Oh, he's a great guy too. And all I can say is whether you look at the actors, the writing, the direction, the cinematography, the music, the editing, it, it's just masterful. It's it's a mastering of the crafts. Absolutely. And uh, every Batman fan, every true Batman fan, is just going to love this. That's great. And Matt's such a great guy. I got to know him uh, um, down at Comic-Con, interviewing him on stage a couple of years uh, for the Apes movies. Um, and uh, just what a thoughtful guy. And I love the story about him and JJ when they were kids in the Super 8. They won a Super 8 film contest. And there was a story in the LA Times, my favorite newspaper. And that story was seen by Steven Spielberg, who said to his then secretary, Kathy Kennedy, can you reach out to these kids? And see if they'll fix up my old Super 8 films. And so uh, Spielberg had like four films that he had made, a war movie was one of them. One was an alien movie uh, as a kid. And so Kathy Kennedy drives out to the valley and hands them to J.J. Abrams, who's like 13, 14 years old, says, here, fix these up, because that's what you do. Uh, you know, it's just a, such a strange and wonderful story. And the fact that they would all come back together uh, I mean, JJ and Kathy and, and, and Steven doing like Super 8 and, uh, and Matt working with uh, JJ on Cloverfield and just seeing uh, the, the energy of, of all of that. That's just really lovely. It, it's amazing how things circle back. And I'll, I'll end with this. Um, I recently went through some old correspondence and found that starting in late 89 was when I started a campaign with the studio to have a movie devoted to the side of Batman as the world's greatest detective. Oh, yeah. It's only taken 33 years to get it. But now I can safely and honestly say it was worth the wait. That's great. That is great. Well, get some popcorn for me because I want to go see it today. Awesome. All right. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you again for joining us and uh, come back in real soon. I will. Thank you. Thanks a lot.